0: Friends, welcome back. It's Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. This is our first recording of the year. Uh, so, welcome, welcome 2021. Uh, so nice to see you. Uh, and so nice to see fellow Bungers, Philip Cunliffe and George Hoare. Hi, guys.
1: Hey, how's it going? I was going to say Happy New Year, but just New Year, just I think, is sufficient. Just, <laughs> just don't need <laughs> it the is happy a new bit. year. Yeah.
0: Yeah, my uh,
2: enthusiasm was definitely forced given that it's um, lockdown <laughs> number three here
1: yeah you're Um, putting back the curtain pretty quickly there (laughs) uh, come on (laughs) let's let's keep let's keep spirits
0: up guys let's 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 at least yeah um, yeah energy
1: Yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, I'm Alex Hokely. Uh,
0: and this is meant to be a Biden administration preview. Um, but some things happened. Some things happened yesterday. Today's Thursday, the 17th, the 7th of January. Um, and some things happened yesterday, I'm sure you'll know. Um, and we're going to talk about those things first. Uh, and then we're also going to do the promised uh, Biden administration preview. And we're joined by Amber Lee Frost and Daniel Bessner to do just that, uh, who'll be on the line in just a second. Um, but I'm actually just looking at the news. And I've I seen that uh, Chuck Schumer, had called for the president's removal as several administration officials resign in protest. It's amazing. It's uh it's like completely farcical. It's like just unable to to hold things together just for the last last couple of weeks.
1: They almost made it almost made it to the end but almost made it to the end as friends, but um yeah, didn't quite happen.
2: The whole thing is fairly extraordinary and I suppose I mean we'll get into this in more detail when we have our guests on. Um but everything about it is so um strange and so difficult to get a fix on i think as well um and i think probably the best thing i've read so far i think is probably mike davis's take on the new left review blog where he says um he says something about you know, it's surreal quality and he quotes the surrealists when they say the condition of inclusion in their surreal kind of ventures in surreal cinema and what have you was that it could that it would not be um explicable by rational me any kind of rational way of understanding things wouldn't work and i think that also fits like um the everything that we've seen in the last 24 hours on capitol hill um the bizarreness the incongruence the incoherence the lack of any um the lack of fit with any kind of easy narrative the confusion all of it is um genuinely incoherent. And I think that's probably an important takeaway, like it is what it looks like. Yeah, no,
0: I I mean, my, my, uh, my mentions have either been going, because I wrote this thing about, which came out a month ago, saying, you know, when Trump peacefully leaves office next month, um, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, Trump's not a fascist and our fantasies of fascism. Um, serve to discipline the left more than anything else. Anyway, uh, people kind of responding, uh, yeah, how, how did that take hold up? Ha 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 ha. Obviously, you know, see, Trump really is trying to do a coup. Um, and other people going, no, actually, that has held up. So, um, well, we'll let listeners decide, because I'm sure we'll be talking uh, with Amber and, and Daniel um, about about that, about these narratives of coup, of fascism, and, and so on, um, before we get on to to some, of the, to some of the stuff about, uh, you know, who, who Biden's brought in and, and whatnot and what to look forward to um, over the next four years. I don't
1: think anybody seriously thinks it's a coup. I mean, well, be pretty well they think it's an so attempt. Do, think no, people, an attempt?
0: people think it's a coup yeah. attempt.
1: Yeah.
2: People do seriously think that. I mean, why do you mean I don't think people seriously think that? Why would you say that?
1: Because it's obviously not. Um <laughs> Yeah, I'm not. Know, I'm not saying That's that That's the problem with Twitter society. Anymore, That's you, the George? problem with society that certain <laughs> people think other things which are
0: different to yours, and, and you can't believe how they think that. It's, it's hard I to should, get your head I around. I should
1: say I haven't. I, I haven't been on Twitter to, to so I'm just kind of I guess projecting what quote unquote normal people think, not what people on Twitter uh, say that they think or tweet about. So, so you're basically,
2: you're representing the man <laughs> in the street here on the podcast.
1: Well, there are no people in the streets. They're all all um, under house arrest, locked down at home. But yeah, I, that's 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 the constituency <laughs> I'm representing. Just straight, straight thinking, straight talking.
2: <laughs> yeah, um,
1: yeah. But I mean, yeah, we, we we I guess we can see what the um, what work that that narrative's doing and who's who's putting that forward, um, whether seriously or not. Yeah. Um,
0: okay. Cool. Let's um, let's get Amber and Daniel on the line and uh, talk about this in more depth. Okay, hello, this is Alex Hokley, Philip Cunliffe, and George Hoare, and we are joined by Daniel Bessner and Amber Lee Frost. Hi guys. We can all say hello in unison. Hi, how are you doing? <laughs> oh, nearly, nearly.
3: <laughs> I had to unmute myself. Uh, yeah, because we, we're such a we're we're such a crowd. We're such a boisterous crowd
2: here.
0: Yeah, wild, wild stuff going
2: on. Almost like an insurrection. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That have, there are a dime a dozen these days insurrections you know when glenn uh when glenn deck talked about a coming insurrection little did he know um yeah there'd be all sorts of insurrections even insurrections on on his team um maybe that's where we should start actually um how significant uh do you think uh yesterday's insurrection that wasn't was um what is your what is your take on it uh daniel
4: uh sure i'll i'll, I'll start off well i think it's I I, I guess to give the disclaimer, it was obviously bad. To have a bunch of, you know, racist Trump people storming the Capitol. But I think that uh, the initial response on, on, the, on the liberal side and the left has been very disconcerting to me, and that's really t- to call it a coup. Um, and then I don't want to get into the type of conversation which is very similar to the fascism conversation, which eventually someone picks their favorite theorist, and you go through the checklist theory of fascism or the checklist theory of the coup, which is, did it fulfill this blah, 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 blah. To me, it's more a question of political strategy and more a question of identifying what actually happened so that our analysis will be better in order to prevent, you know, or or to prevent the social forces that that represented from coming to power or gaining more power or whatever it may have you. And to me, this was not a Coup by any stretch, by any definition. And the only thing that we gain by calling it a coup is to give a logic to an ever more powerful American security state, which is looking for any excuse whatsoever to increase its uh, surveillance authorities, to erode our already eroded civil liberties. And one thing that will happen, which is um, what, what will absolutely happen if the security state, uh, if liberals who, who bolster the state uh, refer to this as a coup and successfully define it as a coup, is not only will this state be empowered. As it always is and has been for centuries, and especially over the last 20 years. But the people who will suffer are going to be the poor and the left and black Americans, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I'm very. Um uh, disappointed or you know, not willing or whatever, to, uh, that people are, are so quick to embrace a security logic that has been so uh, disastrous in both the United States and abroad. And I think this is playing into the hands of the liberals who are about to govern. Maybe if Bernie Sanders or someone else and I was going to be on the NSC, feel free to call it a coup, but who's actually going to be in power is going to be Joe Biden. And Joe Biden and the people who are going to appoint are going to be looking for any excuse to increase their power, to increase their authority, and will do nothing to erode these already very empowered security state apparatuses. And that's why I think it's really important that we actually define what what we mean by uh, what a coup is and why I think it's damaging to uh, refer to it as a coup.
0: Yeah, I mean, this was never, I, I don't think there was any prospect of the security forces going over to Trump's side and uh, sustaining his cause and, and holding up his claims and, exactly. and over to the election, right? I mean, Just want to
4: underline, this is very important because uh, Jim Mattis, who was Trump's secretary of defense, but more importantly, Jim Mattis is a very, very respected military figure. Over the last 20 years, he's been uh, behind some of the most important military developments in, in, in American history. And Jim Mattis came out in public basically lambasting Trump. And I think that's critical because Mattis, um, from what I can tell, speaking on behalf of the uniformed military, of course, the American military is not allowed to literally talk about politics. Um, It it can't make political choices, even though everything they do is profoundly political. So when Mattis is talking and he's going against Trump, he's actually saying the military will not only not support Trump, but the military is going to be on the side of the incoming state. So it was never a coup. Coup require, we could get into the definitions if you wanted, but requires winning over police power, requires winning over the military power, requires things like arresting your political opponents and and exiling them or murdering them, requires having a plan to install ministers. And this was not a coup. It wasn't a cap putsch. It wasn't even a beer hall putsch. Uh, and I think it's important to actually recognize what real coup looked look like.
0: Amber, you want to, I mean, you dissent from that at all? I mean, and actually one of the uh, no, things-
3: Unfortunately, Danny and I are uh, very much in uh, lockstep on this particular point. Um, so uh, we'll both be executed by the liberals together. Um So, yeah, I mean, I I think it's important to think, to realize that this was plain in terms of protest, but spontaneous in terms of um, execution. Um, I think that because liberals in particular, or even like leftists really at this point, have this relationship to protest where they think that absolutely uh, any activity indicates, um, you know, a coordinated life. They, they're they like, this was a coup, this was a coup. Um, because that's also how they think of themselves whenever there's, uh, you know, whenever like, you know, protesters, or whatever, set, set a cop car on fire. They're like, yeah, and it's like, okay, this is like, you know, um, this is mistaking the kind of like libidinal impulses of, of a riot. For uh, a coordinated and organized, like what, like paramilitary group or or, um, occupation or or something sustainable. Um, That said, um, I yeah, I I I do find it a bit disturbing. Um, I'll I'll go ahead and say that Um, one of just to not echo Danny entirely, but one of the things that disturbed me more completely was the fact that. they seemed totally unprepared for, um, this level of, um, we'll say activity at the Capitol, um, which either means that, um, all of the histrionic kind of screaming about Trump being a fascist and his supporters being brown shirts, um, you know, they never actually believed because they weren't preparing for it. Or and this, you know, whatever is conspiratorial, or they uh, anticipated that happening and thought it might make good TV. <laughs> no, I don't think they wanted it to go as far as it did, but I think they very much um, benefit from, let's say, the deplorables in their in their casting getting a lot of screen time, um, and I think, as Danny said. Uh, This will definitely provide a rather um, convenient sort of boogeyman for you know Trump or Harris or whoever have their hands up either of their asses like a muppet to say look we we have to um, you know institute this kind of uh, policy we have to institute more observation we have to crack down on protests we have to whatever because uh, we're protecting you from fascists. There's almost a fascist coup. We're doing this for you. We're taking care of you. Don't you know that those, you know, those horrible racists are uh, you know, uh, planning, planning a coup again in, in the basement of an Aryan bookshop? Um, so that's really what disturbs me, I think, most of all. Uh, the other thing, anyway, I, actually I'd say that's tied for the fact that I think the Democrats are actually set on antagonizing these people. Um, to the point where it it is dangerous. Um, It's very clear to me that, like, there was no interest in de-escalation whatsoever. Uh, I was watching CNN and sort of flipping between that and MSNBC and Fox News when it was going on. Uh, There was a clip of Anderson Cooper saying, like, you know, these people... uh, he said something like, uh, he kept saying, he kept trying to privilege shame them. It was really strange. He kept saying that they were uh, nothing like any of the Americans throughout history who had been, really been denied their rights, who uh, had genuine complaints. And these people are just going to go back to uh, to their holiday inns and, uh, and go back <laughs> to Olive Garden after this. And it was like, wow, you know what? I don't know how you did this, but somehow I hate you more than anyone at the Capitol right now. Um, I think they're, they they're, they're, uh, they're hell bent on um, really, really drawing out this antagonism for spectacle. And I think they don't realize that it's actually really difficult to um, demonize such a chaotic, group of uh people without getting out of hand and people eventually siding with them because guess what they fucking shot a woman to death
2: And what's really uh, kind of what's kind of ironic about the whole thing is that trump the kind of would-be fascist dictator has had so many opportunities for his Reichstag fire moments given emergency um you know the emergency context of the global pandemic and what have you and he's never been able or willing to take them um, whereas it seems like, you know, this effectively could well be, I mean, as Amber indicates, this could be like a mini Reichstag fire moment instead for the Democrats that they will, uh, they've got the kind of the will, the organization and the majorities now to be able to exploit, um, this kind of shambolic, uh, the shambolic outcome of chip away or chisel away even more at civil liberties, and to um, generally enhance the authoritarian power of the U.S. state, as, um, as Danny said. There is one thing which I think is kind of, um, so one thing I would say about it, which I think is kind of uh, extraordinary, is the kind of just the theatre of it is so strange and unusual and um, difficult to process. So aside from the kind of, you know, who they, what the demographic is, um and precisely how they you know whether or not the security was sufficient and how they managed to get past security and all of that what's striking about me is it seems like the shock with which it's been received and the way in which you know i think it was george bush the former president said like this is what happens in a banana republic the just a shambolic character of it all it seems to me that is kind of politically significant insofar as it's um you know, the most hallowed site of the of the U.S. Republic has been desecrated by this carnivalesque spectacle. And that seems to me to be important for how we understand or how everyone in the world, in fact, will understand the nature of U.S. authority. And if people are less confident that the U.S. can be looked up to um, as the kind of paradigm of political probity and authority, then that sounds to me probably like a good thing to come out of all of this. Yeah. So
4: that's uh just very quickly, that's a really interesting thing because one of the things that I've been focusing on in the last year or two is just what happens when I think you're right, the U.S. is shorn or whatever little moral authority it had after Afghanistan, Iraq, and Libya. Um, I think that's right. I think that's clearly happening. I mean, you have, uh, for example, just to take the most obvious things, like people like Trudeau or Johnson or Merkel publicly insulting Trump, right? Um, and I think everyone pretty much recognizes that Biden's kind of an empty suit, and it'll be interesting to see who he Points, and we'll talk about that soon. But what happens when that sort of moral legitimacy is totally absent and still a world, basically world historical, potentially world destroying empire? Because I, I don't think the American, uh, the apparatuses of the American military state are in any way weaker than they've ever been. I think they're ex, ex, still extremely powerful. And the United States could still invade and destroy other countries. You don't even need to rely on mass armies anymore. It's not the 17th century, right? You could, with actually a very small use of force, Really annihilate countries around the world. So you have this strange situation where you have total imperial hegemonic power still extant, and I think that's still true with regards to China, although people might disagree with a totally illegitimate state, both um, at home and 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 abroad. And I think that's um, a really interesting situation that we quite uh, we haven't quite seen in modernity. George, uh, no, I think
2: that's absolutely right. Yeah, I think that kind of and maybe I don't. I think perhaps there's no other point at which. You've had that much of a of a disconnect between the scale of power that's available to the U.S. state, and at the same time, it's like Danny, like you said, Danny, the kind of the relative lack of authority both at home and abroad.
1: I mean, that's going to be a, a challenge for the for the for the Dems to to kind of create this narrative that this is like this is the end of of Trumpism. This is what Biden's saved, um, not just America but the whole world from. And yeah, I mean, it is a, it is an undermining, massively of uh american authority to see this 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 group of people with a limited amount of insurrectionary energy you know kind of deplorables um yeah managed managed to do something like this and so i think that will be the challenge for them for the biden administration will be to say look this is this is all over now this is um you know this is what's been saved you know we've saved you from um let's essentially you know Move, move past this and, and move beyond it um, and re-recover the the American brand internationally as well? Well,
0: I mean, I think like, as I've argued, I think several of us have argued in, in various different uh, media and whatever, uh, that to a certain extent, the kind of liberal centrists need the specter of fascists or, you know, the kind of insurrectionary, confederate flag waving deplorables and so on um to sustain their authority because there's very little else backing it up so i mean i i obviously on one level think they've kind of maybe have done them a favor um but yeah. uh but we'll also but we'll also need to keep talking it up because i mean if this dis- if this disappears if this is just the last hurrah of trumpism not to say that that's the last hurrah of Populism or of uh, any kind of turbulence or disruption to the neoliberal order. Far from it. But if this is the last hurrah of this specific form of it of Trumpism, um, they'll still need to reinvent some other, some other kind of uh, challenge on the horizon. But they, I mean, the kind of democratic establishment, the kind of, well, the US establishment as a whole, I suppose. Um, But I think we'll probably talk a bit about, a bit more about that in a bit. Um, But I did want to ask maybe in more direct reference to what's just happened. Um, to discuss whether there might be a split in the Republican Party in the offing. I mean, do we think that, um, either in formal terms or that maybe just informally, that the the, the kind of Trump Rump, uh, for once the T Rump, the Trump Rump, um, will actually be a kind of cohesive force within or without the Republic, Republican Party, which will cause problems to the kind of GOP establishment. Uh, Amber,
3: um, so I, I've talked about this and like thought about this and considered it before because we saw a fairly not not really a split and i don't see that happening specifically because in the two-party system and you know they're not real parties we don't really have splits in american parties for a number of reasons um namely that they're incredibly sclerotic and undemocratic and the elites in them uh at least in the republican party have party discipline more so certainly than the Democratic Party. Um, but what we do is have these ginger groups internally that sort of shift the party in one direction or another. Um, the tea party, which is the most recent successful example of that, um, Ginger group kind of bastard turf funded from within mm-hmm. um, sort of a you know populist image, but not really, you know, I don't I mean, I think those were the perfect conditions for something like that to, Um, to push the Republican Party more, I guess, libertarian, less traditionally conservative, less kind of, I mean, like the evangelical stuff was sort of like wearing off in terms of way, like the cultural conservatism was sort of going away. I think to reconsider the project of the Tea Party, not as a pushing further rightward, but as a shifting of priorities to economic right-point policies uh, is a better understanding of it. And it was very successful. The problem is um, the kind of resentment of like this, I don't, I don't want to call the people the capital, the Trump base, but they're certainly uh, a significant and active uh, part of the base um, that they're all over the place. Like they are Priorities are all yeah. over the place. These guys, these, are these, go, these guys
0: aren't like economically very right wing. I mean, it's it's that in that regard, they're different from the Tea Party, right? I mean, they're not going to be militating yes. in favor of super low taxes or a minimal state or something like that.
3: Yeah, the 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 Tea Party, like, petit bourgeoisie, did have a shared, um, or at least of the of the allegedly populist wing of it, which is of course funded by Koch brothers, etc. Um, they did have a shared um, set of material interests those people at the Capitol have nothing shared except for exasperation, paranoia, feeling of persecution, hopelessness, and um, we'll say uh, levels of resentment that are completely unfocused and directed, um, uh, we'll say, irrationally. That's not a good basis for what we call a ginger group, which is, you know, the Tea Party. I don't, I don't know what they can do with this. I do know they have a lot of really resentful people. I just don't know what they could, uh, what tent they could put them under together.
4: I think Amber's, I'm surprised I think Amber's exactly right. And I think this raises important questions um, about sort of the dislocation of American communal life in the last 20, 30 years. I imagine this was totally organized online. And so when you don't have these sorts of shared literal physical spaces where people are able to come together and to become what might, you know, to borrow an old Marxist, uh, Marxist term, to become conscious of itself, right? As, as some type of social force, you get what we got yesterday. Right? I, 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 I think that um, in a different era, and it, when there were like real communal organizations where people would go and they would have these social bonds and they would form the, uh, the nucleus of a, of a potential political movement, which is what I think Amber's right, the Tea Party was because it represented a real material force in society. All the people that, that had yesterday was a sort of vague carnival-esque resentment at the United States, which is why when they got in the Capitol, all they did was they were walking around with selfie sticks and they trashed Pelosi's office. So this is, I think, uh, another reflection of the, of which the, the also DJ.
3: we're just jealous. Like, I, I just want to put that out there. There's people who uh, are so disgusted by <laughs> that kind of activity. It's like, you're just jealous because <laughs> I yeah. would have be doing that with my political yeah. project.
4: Yeah, I mean, they, I think the idea was like it looked like it was fun and that's actually attractive to people. And, and that even goes back to the old Nagel argument that she made in Killable Normies, which is not unrelated to this. But I, I think it's also just a reflection of the decommunalization of American life. Um, and, and, and now all the arguments are taking place about it online, too, because we're all stuck inside during a pandemic. But we're in a very, I just want to underline, we're in a very strange moment.
3: Yeah, and yeah. I'm also like reading a little bit, you know, too much Adorno right now and applying it to everything. But I do think that's
1: dangerous. I Be know, careful. I
3: know. Uh, but it, in insofar as I don't agree with um, some of the stuff about uh, you know his evaluation of fascism and like the integration of like psychoanalysis and stuff, part of me like is watching them on TV. These, I mean, they're they're like children. They're like you know, it, like it's very ego driven. Um, but then also there's this realization, uh, much the way the baby one day has to realize that the mother is not just an appendage that he can control. Uh, they're like realizing that Trump is not just an appendage that they can control. Um, and that's, I don't know how they're going to deal with that. Like that is truly unpredictable. Um, I mean, it depends more on pandemic stuff. It depends on, you know, how the in- incoming administration responds to them. Like I said, they do not appear intent on deescalating them, um, which I find very troubling. I mean, just uh, we acknowledge they're they're fucking crazy people. Please do not antagonize the crazy people. <laughs> um, I, I I I I do think that this kind of activity or sentiment is not over. I don't think this is the final tantrum before they bed down. This this energy and resentment is not going anywhere, um, and I have no yeah. idea what's going to happen.
1: Well, I guess part of that, the generation of that resentment, is the risk um, that you know that the I guess the Republican Party could could s- split um to a greater or lesser extent between i guess essentially the deplorables on one side and then the christian evangelicals and the conservatives on the other side and it's likely if that does happen that the the, the former group so the, you know the sort of people who who made this this riot or this <laughs> this protest or this coup up um will will have less influence over the control of the of the party um, obviously it depends a lot what happens in 2024 if trump were to run again but it seems like that's the the potential split that you can have. Um, and you know that's I guess the the risk if the if that um, constituency isn't represented within the party or isn't isn't able to to influence it to the same extent, you'll have that's that same sort of I guess insurrectionary energy.
0: Yeah I mean to move things on, I think it's worth restating that the Democrats won the popular vote in the presidential election they won the electoral college they won a majority in the house and now have 50% of the senate so we've still been talking about trump and and about the republicans right at the start um, and of course it's still the thing that's making the headlines and it they're still who they're you know it's still the republicans it's who won the presidency for you huh
2: There's a headline for you right now. So Speaker Pelosi, she says she's called for um, Trump's removal from office. And she says, if the Vice President Pence doesn't invoke the 25th Amendment, then House Democrats will pursue impeachment. So again, so that'll be impeachment for um, the second time. They already did it. Yeah, I know. Bizarre, huh?
0: But it was so much fun
2: the first time. Do it again. (laughs) Once again, like literally,
3: you're just. Are they just trying to antagonise the base?
2: Yeah, it struck me actually That's that the absurd. best way the best way to kind of to defang Trump would be for Biden to give him a pardon, because it would completely remove <laughs> any kind of um, you know mystique or that he enjoys right. being an outsider, kind of a representative of the excluded and the yeah, marginalised. Yeah, nice. And it would entirely fold him into the elite, you know, as well as kind of allowing them, you know, just to kind of pass over this moment. Um, it would completely demolish his legitimacy in the eyes of his followers and supporters. But instead, And a Nobel it, Peace Prize as well. Yes, even better. So uh, <laughs> you know, kind of full presidential pardon, um, Nobel Peace Prize. And, you know, and he goes away. Instead, they're pursuing this kind of idiotic antagon- strategy of antagonism um, kind Did, of to they... rally and whip up their base. And it's com- going to backfire.
4: They need to do it though. I think in in, various timescales, modern liberalism is constituted by first anti-fascism, then anti-communism, then anti-Islamism, and now we're back to anti-PRC and anti-fascism. So literally, I'd say modern liberalism, as it is articulated in the United States, is a product of the 1930s and 1940s. So it literally needs this logic to justify its technocratic governance. Literally, the argument for the modern American state is premised on anti-fascism and anti-communism. So I think it needs to do that. But then there's even more proximate causes, which is that you have people who had spent four years Whipping up resentment uh, against Trump by calling him the worst thing since Hitler. Literally, um, they need they need something like this. They they need a rice dog fire because they can't just have him go out with a total whimper because that would that would have um, the psychic damage uh, of that to themselves who have been you know claiming for years and years built careers, made millions of dollars, raised. Hundreds millions of dollars, I imagine, for quick, uh, quixotic uh, campaigns. They need something like this. This is the biggest gift to a central uh, to centrist liberalism that um, they could have possibly gotten.
0: Hello, listener. This is Alex here doing one of those annoying inserts, but I'll try to be quick. I want to let you know about the BungaCast Reading Club. Once a month, we take an important text and analyze it, trying to extract its contemporary relevance and the political essence for today. We do this with help from our patrons who send in questions, comments, and their takes on the matter. And we've just set down the reading list for the whole of 2021, and I very quickly want to tell you about it. Coming up this month, we're discussing Richard Tuck's The Left Case for Brexit, looking at arguments for popular sovereignty, in a context in which Brexit has been reduced to behind-closed-doors negotiations about trade. Then we're reading Deleuze on the Societies of Control, very apt, I think, in the midst of lockdowns. We'll also be looking at Perry Anderson's huge three-part essay series on the European Union, which is currently being serialized in the London Review of Books. For the rest of 2021, we're reading works by Slavoj Zizek on post-politics, Michael Lind on Class War, Eva Luz's critique of emotional capitalism, Michael Lowy Distinguishing Marxism from Romanticism, Elie Zaretsky on Psychoanalysis, and Marshall Berman's classic, All That Is Solid Melts Into Air. We think it's a nice mix of long essays with a few books thrown in, so the reading load should never get too heavy. If you'd like to join, we'd of course be delighted to have you. You can sign up now at Patreon.com/Bungacast. Look forward to seeing you there. Okay, now back to authoritarian liberalism and its discontents.
3: Well, and additionally, I—it's I, interesting to watch um, the right. Um, or at least this sort of fringe right subculture imitate the left in terms of its like completely innocuous but totally libidinal protest
2: culture. Yeah, absolutely.
3: Um, so it's like, oh, this is it, now there's a populist resentment among people uh, among reactionaries, but they are just as incompetent and uh, you know believe that the you know the i guess that the medium is is the actual essential thing like that you know it's all you know the, the spontaneity the protest the, the you know the outpouring of emotional whatever and i i don't know i could also see you know if if republicans don't take advantage of that these people might also be just as marginalized as the left because they clearly aren't very good at organizing. Now, also I mean, we talk about like you know how they need this. Again, like this this sounds very paranoid, but they're they're saying like um uh, uh, why were why were we not prepared? I mean, there are multiple there are multiple politicians giving statements. They're like it's very surprising that we didn't immediately, you know, have like the National Guard on hand. And it's like yeah. That is surprising. Um, and when I was going in between Fox News and uh, and CNN, uh, Fox News, right up until they were, like, smashing windows, um, was covering a lot of the sort of Georgia protests, which is sort of people milling around and, you know, going around in their mobility scooters. Um, and CNN was like, look at what's fucking happening. So it's almost like the right... It, uh, the, the right media outlets were just trying to say like, well, look, you know, here's what's going on. Uh, they, like literally there is, there was like a solid like a very long time when they were just showing like a, a small crowd outside of, I don't know, the Georgia Capitol. Um, and so- the, 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 the it, it's just, it just seems like what they're the right institutions are trying to de-escalate the Trump base so that they can move forward and you know CNN and the other media institutions have a real investment in showing the biggest spectacle possible now I think it got out of hand I don't think they expected it to get as bad as it did but they I think they wanted a a moment that would look good on camera
0: so maybe to to turn to the more sedate world of of the halls of power well when they aren't being um, overrun by guys in uh, horns and uh, well, looking like bison. I don't know what that was. Um, I think it's a good look, personally. That's just but an not American protest. That's <laughs> that guy's
3: at every American protest. They, of course, immediately found that guy at Black Lives yeah. Matter protest too. Right, and he was That's he's an
0: actor a- apparently, or an aspiring actor. Um, We're all
3: actors, we are, Alex. Yeah. It's America.
0: This is performing performing <laughs> politics. Anyway, so um to turn to actually the the Democrats' legislative agenda, because obviously they Biden ran on not very much of substance. Um, certainly, in terms of the the kind of headline messages. Um, but Danny, could you maybe talk us through what what you think at least with the the dem legislative agenda will be?
4: Oh, that's actually a really interesting question. Um, I've been paying most attention to the foreign policy world, and I just want to just briefly. It's going to be more of the same, I i, I imagine. Obama. Well, we can start. We can uh, start with Obama.
0: foreign policy. Let's start with foreign policy, and then we'll we'll come back to
4: domestic. Sure, sure. So let's start with foreign policy then. So. um if you look at the people who Biden has appointed, people like Blinken and, and Jake Sullivan and other people, um, they're basically Obama administration veterans. I'm sure we'll see people like John Fevreau and Ben Rhodes in and out of the administration like that. Um, so I think what we're going to a see. A, on give us a sense of, to, of who
0: these people are. Like, what? What are their roles? Where do they come from? What do they previously do? Uh,
4: so it, it's it's a really good question. So um, Blinken and Sullivan. Uh, Blinken was uh, basically. Joe Biden's um, advisor during the Obama administration, Uh, Sullivan was associated with Hillary Clinton during the Obama administration. Um, And then we have, um, who's the other one that I just mentioned Uh, was was another Biden uh, 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 associate. So basically you have like the Biden uh, Clinton team being promoted to the higher positions within the administration. Um, So the big question is, So essentially like the structural conditions of American empire are going to remain exactly the same, they're gonna have the enormous defense budget, you're going to have the global system of bases. You're going to have the, you know, 200,000-ish troops deployed at random places around the world. You're going to have the uh, uh, the, the the continuation of the turn to special operations forces and uh, drones for like low footprint military interventions. That all is going to remain the same. Um, I think the biggest question is what are you going to uh, what's going to happen if you get another sort of Benghazi-type situation because that everyone that Biden has appointed was on the sort of hawkish side of those debates. So there were various debates in the obama administration you know what do you do with mubarak during the arab spring what do you do with um as he threatens benghazi and the people who biden have appointed are essentially younger people who didn't live through, let's say, the second half of the Cold War, and who are, are, are bullish on using military um, military force to sort of world make, to, to make the world in, in, in America's image. So the question, though, is that have there been uh, has there been enough of a political change in the last you know four years, or really since Libya, and Obama saying things like Libya was the biggest um, disaster of his administration to prevent the type of use of force that we've seen in the past? Um, my guess is that... If there's a humanitarian crisis that can be used to justify uh, intervention, people like Blinken are going to be in favor of it. Biden is actually weird because he has different perspectives on this, but I think he's kind of like not all there, and I think it's going to be mostly in his... It's going to be mostly those under him who are going to um, be making the foreign policy administration. So it's not going to be, I think, a particularly interesting time for critics of foreign policy because I think we're just going to get more of the same and what could have been a really transformative uh, administration under Bernie isn't going to get going. Um, In terms of legislation, I think that that the sort of win in the Senate raises a whole lot of interesting questions, but I've been rambling along and I'll let Amber take that up because I'm curious to see what she thinks uh, the them control the Senate means, if anything.
0: Well, let's just let's just stick to foreign policy just for a second. I don't know if you, Amber, you wanted to comment on on foreign policy immediately, because I mean, I, my my question is, I think, or everyone's question is, does this mean more war? Does this mean uh, more war than we've even had under? Well, than we had under the Trump administration, where you know, notably, didn't really start any new wars. So,
3: I mean, I think this is a you know, this is a very kind of classic kind of Staliny uh response but i think the i think foreign policy is determined by domestic policy so it depends how they manage what little shambles of the state we have and i and i would say like you know danny always at this point like apologizes and prefaces things is like like well i've been paying attention to foreign policy and, and not not domestic politics lately and it's like well okay so that's really the only part of america that functions right now so it kind of does make sense i mean when people talk about it as a failing state um It is a failing state insofar as it functions as a state, but it's an increasingly successful empire. Um, So it does make sense to focus on that. Um, But yeah, I can jump more in when uh,
2: when we switch to domestic. Phil? I mean, I think, yeah, it's an interesting one because, I mean, I think on the one hand, you know, I think they will have been, they will certainly continue the geopolitical rivalry with China. So that will, um, you know, that's locked in. And in any case, it began under Obama with the pivot to Asia and all of that. So, I mean, that was already long in the works and I think the Democrats will continue it. Um, I do think the temptation to... have some kind of war, humanitarian intervention, some kind of military display of force, I think will be overwhelming and that they'll have difficulty resisting it. Um, I'm sure they're, um, they're chastened by the experiences of Iraq and Libya in as much as they don't want it to um be so kind of uh, not that they particularly care about human life, but only in as much as they want to avoid the spectacle of it being a disaster. So if they see the possibility for a theatrical, a theatrical win um, without having to take any kind of political responsibility for nation building, military occupation, what have you, I think they'll they'll take it and they need to i think in order to in i mean part of the whole thing about america being back as biden says is america throwing its imperial weight around um and so they so, they have to show they have to have some kind of show of force um in order to differentiate themselves from trump
1: yeah my my question here is how it's going to be justified because i guess the you know will it be responsibility to protect or humanitarian grounds i mean th- america throwing its weight around doesn't seem a particularly um you know, probably particularly good, good way to justify it. Um, will it just be, this is the, the, you know, this is the post-Trump order, America's, you know, America's back, sense but we're sensible this time. We, we, we've, we've learned our lessons. Well, I'm,
2: still, I mean, I'm still, I mean, I'm still making, I still think, you know, it's a possibility that they might invade Brazil to stop Brazil, to stop the Brazilian government, like rampaging through the Amazon. And then that this no. will put Alex in an ethical conundrum. Will he try See, to set up a guerrilla insurgency to fight the gringos or will he kind of, you know, follow his duty to the planet? So will he defend Brazilian sovereignty and launch a guerrilla war against the American empire? What will he do?
0: Maybe stay, tuned to aber- stay tuned <laughs> to find out. Yeah,
2: it'll be a green. I mean, I don't know. It's hard to imagine a green intervention. But, uh, you know, maybe a natural disaster, something like what happened with um, Cyclone Nagus in Burma in 2008, when um, Bernard Kushner, who is, I think, the French foreign minister at the time, was pushing for a military intervention into Burma. Um, I could see a kind of a green-tinged humanitarian intervention, something like that.
3: I think I, I just like the idea of Alex, the most um, unlikely eco-terrorist. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: exactly.
1: Yeah, like I'm the not. episode of Archer. I don't know if you've seen it.
3: Yeah, oh, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
2: um, so we'll it's really leave for another time. To need
3: a humanitarian uh, precedent. I think, in particular, because uh, the Democrats have spent the entire Trump administration oh. sort of stoking fear and feelings of being um, under attack, um, although from you know to enemies within. Um. I, I don't even think they'll have to be like, oh, no, we have to save the women from female genital mutilation or we have to save the indigenous people. From... I think that they could just be like, these people are bad people. Bringing uh, humanitarian all- intervention
0: home. You know, I mean, I, 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 I'm being kind of slightly facetious, but that might have a, have a role to play that um, both in the eyes of the world and in its own eyes that the United States might be able to gain that ethical sheen not through intervention abroad, but by saying that we are fighting off these reprobates at home. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I wonder whether... Well, totally,
3: but it, insofar as I think that we could intervene abroad, I don't even think we would have we would have to argue it on humanitarian grounds. We'd, we'd just be like, draw some sort of specious kind of relationship where a bunch of like MAGA people were on a um, a message board or a subreddit, you know, supporting, I don't know... Iran or something. <laughs> All they would have to do is uh, connect what the new enemy with um, the enemy within. And then they don't even have to argue that there's that there's someone yeah. we're doing this benefit.
4: And what will be really interesting with this, because there's I think you're going to see Biden fulfill the Obama, second Obama administration, like pivot to Asia thing that never really got off the ground. Um, but what's interesting about the type of new Cold War stuff is that, uh, unlike the Soviet Union and the United States, I mean, the United States and the PRC are, are so economically intertwined. So I think you're just going to get this type of shadow war where you're going to see millions of dollars, billions of dollars funneled to essentially pork in the United States to build these pointless weapons and to fund these these pointless defense factories. I think you're going to see um uh, a lot of that happened but you're, i think you are going to see intervention abroad i mean if you look in the most recent issue of foreign affairs samantha power has an article titled like something that can do power yeah <laughs> I think that's she's basically singling like the united states is back and, and, it's going and, to anti-
0: and anti-corruption is going to be a big plank of that i think following that article i mean that this is that the u.s is an ethical power going around um trying to break up Whatever clientelist relations that you might have elsewhere. And of course, that's all that's useful in targeting both China and, and Russia. So yeah, that's, I, I imagine that'll be something, um, that'll emerge in the next, uh, in the next couple of years. Um, let's turn to the domestic agenda because yeah, as we've already said, you know, kind of having. Um, a very slim majority in the Senate with uh, with the vice president being able to uh, cast cast a decisive vote there um, changes things a little bit. Maybe that kind of blue wave did actually manifest in um, legislative supremacy. So what does that mean? The Democrats are going to actually have to do something now or?
3: No, um, I would say that what their project now is will be um, will be largely based around justifying their legitimacy um, you know, looking busy, that kind of thing. Um, and I think they've got at least two years of uh, you know like talking about the the deplorable still, even with Trump non novice they will they will keep that going. The other thing I would say is that the way that they're going to exercise their power um, is becoming increasingly managerial rather than legislative. The example that I would use that I'm extremely disturbed by is uh, the way, for example, uh, Governor Cuomo in New York is managing vaccine rollout. Now, this is not something that's subject to, uh, you know, mass like political coordination and democracy and et cetera. And I can understand that, you know, in, a, in an emergency, sometimes, you know, it's like executive power has to be we got to hurry up and, and get these out here what he's doing however and i think he's very consciously doing it is creating an entire bureaucracy uh around uh the vaccine rollout that is incredibly inefficient and that is highly punitive toward healthcare workers now, for example, if someone cuts in line for a vaccine, the hospital is fined. Um, all, the only place you could administer uh, these uh, vaccines is in a hospital. Um, and if they aren't administering them, or I think if the Tesla's over, they also get fined. So now Cuomo is in a position where he can, um, I don't know, uh, make an image of himself as someone who's trying to roll out the vaccines Meanwhile, the ineffective public employees at the hospital are getting in the way. Uh, They're lazy. They're letting people cheat. There's corruption all around. Of course, there's going to be people going to jump the line. It's New York. It's full of rich people. Um, He's going to have, um, uh, while people are panicked too and trying to trying to get the vaccine, he's going to uh, be in a position where he could blame. Uh, you know, vaccines going bad on the shelf because they have a very short shelf life. I mean, like they weren't even, by the way, vaccinating on the weekends for a while. I think he could create a bad situation and then use that to punish what are essentially public employees. Now, that is the kind of brilliant fucking policy uh, of someone with um, uh, authoritarian political aspirations, uh, someone who I'm, I'm way more concerned about than like Donald Trump. I mean, he came out, by the way, being a populist, with a book about how he defeated uh, Corona before the second wave. Like, this is a crazy person. And he knows that he has a hot ticket. And in addition to creating a bad system that he, can make him look like the good guy cop who's keeping law and order and making sure people get the, his vaccines, um, it acts as a, a disciplining um, kind of effect for, for public employees. And uh, I, I think it's you're going to see more shit like that. I think uh, he's he's literally also shifted the process to where he is um, rolling out like the program for vaccination. I mean that's insane. He's a governor. Who ever heard of an Italian hospital administrator? Like there's no reason he should be developing a plan for how to roll out the healthcare. It, I don't know if it should be like the you know the New York chapter of the American Medical Association or what, but he has slowly consolidated um, and um, uh, consolidated his power and uh, bulked up his responsibilities and increased his authority over what is essentially like a public health program, which he has no expertise in, no nothing. I think you're going to see a lot of people sort of um, making grabs in the desperation to increase their power and authority. And I think Corona has provided an amazing opportunity for that because people are poor, they want the vaccine, they're panicking and then they don't know what to do.
4: And I just want to very quickly just add on to what Amber says and highlight how this rhymes with what I was just talking about, about the need of some external crisis or some external enemy to increase centralized power in an executive or in some sort of uh, u- using some sort of technocratic means to increase centralized power, which is a theme that we've seen in American history over the last 150 years, over the last 70, and then really over the last 30. So you could see how these similar logics are operating in different spheres.
3: And I think a year ago, I was like, well, look, a Biden presidency is going to be like technocratic tinkering and, you know, like Kamala's education bill, where it's like you can have 10% of your loans forgiven if you have, you know, if you mm. started a small business that were a first-generation college attendee and received... Like, I was like, they're going to do weird, arcane shit like that, that they can navigate. Now, I don't even think they need to do that. Now they can, when people are like, well, what are the Democrats doing? They're like, we're managing a crisis. Hmm. Um, I don't think legislation will even be necessary.
0: And the economic crisis, which will continue, I mean, like well beyond after vaccination is done. And, you know, hopefully that's sooner rather than later. But uh, there's still enough crisis out there for, for them to manage.
2: And
4: just very quickly, this is particularly a problem in America where so much governance gets done in, like, apolitical bureaucratic institutions that make rules. So it's actually very easy to, like, point to this and just make new rules (coughs) that have no democratic legitimacy.
0: So, I mean, if they do try to pass anything, I mean, of, of any substance... Are, do you think that Republicans are going to be obstructive? Or are they going to try to be? Do they have the capacity to be? Um, and maybe also a, as a kind of follow-on from that, pick up yeah, whichever question you prefer. Um, what uh, is the role of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party? I mean – uh, I think notably, they haven't managed to extract any sort of concessions because they seem not to understand how power works. Um, but that notwithstanding, do they do they play play a role? Do they play an ideological role um, within the the democratic uh, administration, or if not inside the de- the administration, at least within American uh, formal politics? They
3: they play the role of the patsy. right yeah that's Um, yeah (laughs) I I also I also don't even think it's it's like an absence of strategy but the truth of the matter is the so-called left wing of the democratic party is like five people yeah and they have no power I mean they exist literally as an alibi they are allowed to um you know stay in office essentially either because no one notices they're there or because they provide um you know an alibi for the party at large that that's like well look no that like this this person got elected um yeah good things
0: are meanwhile, happening Meanwhile, they keep
3: their numbers down to, to the point where they they couldn't possibly exercise any influence i mean we just don't have the influence and that's that's how the party was built and uh, and yeah and like i'm not kidding there're really only five of them and in 2 years you know there will probably be only three and the other two i won't say who they will but they'll be like you know cutting the ribbons on new like you know, brave girl feminist statues on Wall Street.
2: (laughs) Yeah, exactly right.
0: So, I mean, with that in mind, um, and the fact that Biden, the Biden administration, Biden didn't really run on anything. And the Biden administration, um, following what uh, Amber and Daniel have said, um, won't really need to do anything. They can just manage crisis and not really have any legislative agenda to pass. With that in mind, what can the Biden administration be held to account for? What should they be held to account for? And will they be held to, to account for anything? And by, and by whom, um, obviously, and by whom? Because obviously, it could be mainstream Republicans, it could
4: be far-right
0: Republicans, it could be the left, whatever.
4: Well, I, I just want to say, I mean, it's really uh, interesting. I think you see a lot of people uh, <laughs> on the left side of the of the spectrum, myself included, kind of rethinking what they're going to do in the wake of the burning loss. And I think there's this rethinking because I don't think we have very much power to do anything. Um, And so uh, in some sense, I think the Biden administration is going to have uh, the ability to essentially do whatever it wants, it's going to have almost no one to hold them accountable. And it's going to be a continuation of status quo policies. I don't see how that is going to change in the, in the medium or long term. So I, I'm just incredibly pessimistic about the whole political project of the left, at least right now. I, I'm not saying that it's doomed forever, and I'm not saying people should stop working, but I, I definitely think for the next four to eight years, unless there's some sort of exogenous change, I don't see the left in particular, which is what I care about, having any ability to hold Biden to account for it, to anything.
0: Yeah, I mean, what about even on the right? Because you know I, I imagine the vast waves of the media are signed up to supporting uh, the democratic establishment and in terms of i mean you know other than like sort of fox news or even these new outlets to the right of fox news um beyond that is there any kind of poll in american society whether in the media and in, in other institutions um amongst the populace at large which will try to hold the biden administration to account or is this just uh just uh, uncle joe totalitarianism the whole way
3: no, yeah, I mean he's 100% accountable to um you know capital and uh you know the the relationships he's had to uh the insurance industry and the pharmaceutical industry and you no know, he's I mean <laughs> Joe Biden um is a is a friend but, of the fire economy but he will but he, will, but like he, he will be he will be friendly to. with
0: it but that's the point is he will be friendly with them there's not yeah there's no antagonistic holding to account um from any other poll in society i mean other than maybe you know fox news will say bad things about biden but um beyond that kind of demographic and the people who subscribe to those views it, it probably doesn't have that much repercussion right
3: sure but i, I i'm just saying that like uh, the idea of like you know uh, jotalitarianism is um, <laughs> yeah. is a, a, bit, a bit it's I mean yeah he's a, he's a willing servant um, to those people but like very willing to the point where like um, you get the impression he's never felt coerced I mean they would you know whatever break his legs if, if he tried to buck but he doesn't want to but I remember um, my co-host once pointed out how little success or um, benefit Joe has received from essentially being, um, you know, just the lapdog of of um, capital, and he's like, you know what? Like Joe really just is not in it for the love of the game? <laughs> like he he'll he'll do it for a free cup of coffee. Um, yeah, cup of Joe, like,
1: cup of Joe, yeah, There you go. That's yeah. enough. It's uh, he has he
3: it's it, there's no there's nothing coercive there's no antagonism he's um he's friendly with them and he's accountable to them but uh boy he he loves he loves Shoto for work in the morning yeah Joe does
4: strike me as someone who has a very serious will to power in in a real sense um and this is what and this is what actually makes his appointments probably the most important thing of his administration. Similar to Reagan or someone like that, someone who is a sort of good at uh, being a glad handing politician who, as Amber said, like, loved the game for some reason, loves being a politician, but who doesn't have any particularly strong political program. uh, That's not just whatever the party says at the time. So I think that's going to be I think he actually does have foreign policy views. um, So he might take some role there. But uh, I think that it's going to be interesting because I think there's going to be a lot of different sort of governments within the Biden administration. And it's going to be very different. And whether there's a coherent strategy um, is, I think, not going to be. I don't think there will be a coherent strategy, essentially.
0: Yeah. So I mean, maybe just to just to sort of wrap this up. Um, because, you know, you got, uh, yeah, Joe, Ta- Joe, totalitarianism. Um, I'm not, I'm not, I don't <laughs> think we can run with that. Joe, Uncle Joe. Um, I, we'll, we'll workshop this and we'll, we'll come back to you. <laughs> um, what, uh, I, I mean, I, I was going to ask this question, you know, what next for the left? But then Phil was like, oh, don't fucking ask that. That's a terrible question. That's, and it is a terrible question. Um, but I guess it, I mean, it, not in the sense of like, what should, what should the left do? But I mean, it is the left entirely, wedded now to the democratic party with little say and completely despondent uh, is it back to kind of where it was in 2014 let's say um or is there any some any indication of kind of breaking with uh with with the democratic party in any way
2: and just I to say- clarify i mean the reason i the reason i think these questions are problematic is generally because i think they uh, plays into the fantasy that the left has somewhere to go whereas surely you know given the way in which the left has been completely outmaneuvered and excluded from um from any kind of in meaningful influence in power in the biden team um you know surely it's time to kind of uh, say there's nowhere to go
4: make content now is the time for content
2: <laughs> i
3: mean i would say um i'd rather be uh, A a socialist under, and I've told this story a million times, but basically what happened during, uh, you know, Bush is that people on the left became anti Bush and it sucked all the air out of the room. And like, uh, you know, magazines like The Nation, which used to have um, at least the vestiges of a working class uh, or at least class oriented left wing politics, just became the anti Bush thing. And that's what you saw happen with Trump uh, to some degree. And there were some people who had been moved left by the Bernie campaign that didn't go back to, you know, but that's a very minority, that's a very minority group of people. So in some ways, I think we are better off under Biden. However, I think the country is uh, going to continue a a slow, steady um, slide. And it's not sliding up um, I, I will say say I am concerned about the degree of authoritarianism that um, that they're going to attempt to justify. I will say that I, again. I'm I'm very concerned that like even like legislation won't even be there. They can they can sit on their ass um, and not show anything. They don't even have to do those uh, those little technocratic tweaks um, just because they could say we're managing a crisis here. Um, I that resentment from the Trump base or the, the, you know, the, the electrified Trump base is not going anywhere. Um, and I don't know, it could go either way. I think it's easier for leftists or socialists to have conversations about like the shortcomings of the party when the party is in charge, because it's like, look, look what they're doing or what they're not doing. Um, but, having those conversations is um you know only part of it getting people on your side is 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 only part of it what what we should be doing is is building institutions and um you know the the labor movement i don't i don't see that happening i don't see that happening plus people are fucking tired after four years of this shit they're just exhausted
0: yeah i mean i guess that's um that's of all the bad scenarios, the the worst one I think it seems is is just depoliticization and and with further withdrawal um, from politics as people are exhausted from from culture wars. Um, so that that's kind of a, a fairly grim uh, prognosis. Um, but yeah, yeah, that I guess that's what we're looking at. We're looking at uh, kind of at, at least I don't know about that about the bit that I've just said. But I mean, in terms of um, what the U.S. government will look like, uh, permanent crisis management, at least for the next two years, um, and maybe some dabbling in humanitarian uh, intervention abroad. Um, that seems like a pretty um, a pretty grim picture, uh, for, especially for a government headed by someone who's just saved the free world, um, supposedly.
4: Right. <laughs> I think that's why, I mean, it, uh, Alex, exactly for that reason, I think that's why you're seeing the left essentially like go crazy, at least online, which is my only interaction with the left at, at, at this moment right now.
3: That's their think... only interaction with the world, so... <laughs>
4: Right, right, right. So I think you're you're having this like people are losing their minds. They don't know what to do, uh, and I think this is reflected to you know bring it back to call it back to the, the 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 coup conversations that are having now and the sort of this fevered need to identify things as the absolute worst thing humanly possible. When I, in my opinion, they're very patently not. You need to have that in some sort of feel, fulfill some sort of psychic function.
0: I guess um, to finish this on a positive note, uh, it does mean that the rest of us, um, all those of us who are not those 300 million uh, US Americans uh, can go back to focusing on our own affairs um, and stop participating in the US circus. So that's good. We'll let them get on with their things. Thank you very much, Amber and Daniel. You get on with uh, sorting out America. Good luck with that. Um, you have our full support, but we've also got other things uh, to be getting on with. Uh, that's it for now. Catch you later. <laughs> Bye-bye.